I invite you to remain standing as together we share in the foundational creed of our faith, the Shema, which Jesus would have said uh, prior to reading scripture and when he arose and when he went to bed at night. Together, let us share in this creed. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ehad. Hear, O Israel. The Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I'm going to ask you to be seated as our scripture reading today comes to us from 1 Corinthians 15, and it is a rather long passage. But let us listen attentively to the word of God. Some skeptic is sure to ask, show me how resurrection works. Give me a diagram. Draw me a picture. What does this resurrection body look like? If you look at this question closely, you realize how absurd it is. There are no diagrams for this kind of thing. We do have a parallel experience in gardening. You plant a dead seed Soon there is a flourishing plant. There is no visual likeness between seed and plant. You could never guess what a tomato would look like by looking at a tomato seed. What we plant in the soil and what grows out of it doesn't look anything alike. The dead body that we bury in the ground and the resurrection body that comes from it will be dramatically different. You will notice that the variety of bodies is stunning. Just as there are different kinds of seeds, there are different kinds of bodies. Humans, animals, birds, fish, each unprecedented in its form. You get a hint at the diversity of resurrection glory by looking at the diversity of bodies, not only on earth, but in the skies, sun, moon, stars, all these varieties of beauty and brightness. And we're only looking at pre-resurrection seeds. Who can imagine what the resurrection plants will be like? This image of planting a dead seed and raising a live plant is a mere sketch at best. But perhaps it will help in approaching the mystery of the resurrection body. But only if you keep in mind that when we're raised, we're raised for good, alive forever. The corpse that's planted is no beauty, but when it's raised, it's glorious. Put it in the ground, weak, it comes up powerful. The seed sown is natural. The seed grown is supernatural. Same seed, same body, but what a difference from when it goes down in physical mortality to when it is raised up in spiritual immortality. We follow this sequence in scripture. The first Adam received life. The last Adam is a life-giving spirit. Physical life comes first, then spiritual. A firm base shaped from the earth. A final completion coming out of heaven. The first man was made out of earth, and people since then are earthy. The second man was made out of heaven, and people now can be heavenly. 
in the same way that we've worked from our earthy origins. Let's embrace our heavenly ends. I need to emphasize, friends, that our natural earthy lives don't in themselves lead us by their very nature into the kingdom of God. Their very nature is to die. So how could they naturally end up in the life kingdom? But let me tell you something wonderful, a mystery I'll probably never fully understand. We're not all going to die, but we are all going to be changed. You hear a blast to end all blasts from a trumpet, and in the time that you look up and blink your eyes, it's over. On signal from that trumpet from heaven, the dead will be up and out of their graves, beyond the reach of death, never to die again. At the same moment and in the same way, we'll all be changed. In the resurrection scheme of things, this has to happen. Everything perishable taken off the shelves and replaced by the imperishable, this mortal replaced by the immortal. Then the saying will come true, death swallowed by triumphant life. Who got the last word, O death? O death, who's afraid of you now? It was sin that made death so frightening, and law code guilt that gave its sin its leverage, its destructive power. But now in a single victorious stroke of life, all three, sin, guilt, death, are gone. The gift of our master, Jesus Christ. Thank God. With all this going for us, my dear, dear friends, stand your ground and don't hold back. Throw yourselves into the work of the master, confident that nothing you do for him is a waste of time our effort. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Engaged, we made a decision, as many couples do, to be, each be responsible for the inscription that would go inside of our wedding rings and that we would keep that inscription a secret until the day of our wedding. Now, several months into our engagement, um, I found myself in a discussion with my wife about the biblical story of Ruth. In that story, as you may know, the widowed Ruth makes a famous proclamation to her widowed mother-in-law, and she says, I will go where you go, where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Stacy told me that she felt that Ruth's statement was powerful, and that it was a guide for the commitment of marriage. Now, being the emotional wizard that I was at the ripe age of 22, I told her how wrong she was and that Ruth's statement had nothing to do with marriage. I argued that it was a statement of family ties and tribalism between two people that were not going to be married. And I made a brilliant case against my wife's understanding of the story, completely undermining her perspective. I'm sure most of you can guess that unbeknownst to me, my wedding ring had already been inscribed with the quote from Ruth. I completely missed it. It was an absolute whiff. I wasn't even in the ballpark. Unless you think that the universe is not just or that God doesn't have a sense of humor, the week before our wedding, I suffered a large cut on my ring finger, right where my wedding ring would go. And in the chaos leading up to the wedding, I forgot to mention the wound to Stacy. 
who wound up painfully jamming a Ruth-inscribed wedding ring over my swollen and wounded finger, saying, I will go whether where you go, whether you get it or not. I still have a scar on my underneath my wedding ring, and I love that I do, because it reminds me that I missed it. It reminds me that even with all the knowledge I thought I had, I wasn't asking the right questions. I wasn't thinking big enough. I failed to recognize that a woman who loved me was standing right in front of me, telling me that she loved me so much that even if I died, she wouldn't bail on the covenant. My people would become her people. Stacy was thinking big. I was not. To be honest, not thinking big thoughts is something I still struggle with from time to time. I can so easily get lost in the minutia and the details, trying to parse out every possibility, missing the forest for the trees, so to speak. If you've joined us on our journey through 1 Corinthians this summer, you have learned that the church at Corinth also suffered with this problem, getting lost in the minutia of rules and status and rivalry while missing the big concepts of compassion and wisdom and love. As we heard in the reading this morning from 1 Corinthians 15, what many scholars argue is the great crescendo of the entire letter, that Corinthians still appear to be missing the point and thinking too small, this time about resurrection. In their defense, it's not that the Corinthians necessarily mean to discount or disregard the realities of resurrection. They just appear to be getting lost in the details trying to build rules and structure around something that is simply too big to contain. We share much in common with the people of Corinth. We are all Western thinkers, meaning we educate, learn, and think like Greeks. We like structure and rules, cause and effect, empirical data, and so did they. So they attempted to wrestle the reality of the resurrection to the ground and make it all make sense. Paul essentially comes along jams a wedding ring on their wounded fingers and tells them to wake up, that they're missing it. And from what I can tell, Paul's problems with what the Corinthians are doing to the resurrection seem to fall into two categories of small thinking. First, Paul doesn't like that some of the Corinthians are viewing resurrection as something to attain rather than something we continually experience. They're assuming they can access the fullness of the resurrection right now And Paul calls that idea foolish and goes to great lengths to tell the Corinthians that the body they have right now is not their resurrection body. And they can't possibly access the fullness of the resurrection right now. And that makes me wonder why. Why is that so important? Why does Paul get so worked up about this specific way of viewing resurrection? I think it's because Paul could see where such thinking leads. Paul could see that understanding the resurrection as a destination rather than a continual and cyclical journey leads us to all sorts of bad ideas. The worst among them being the one that an individual can access the fullness of the resurrected life apart from another. That salvation and wholeness and enlightenment are personal, detached, and private. Paul rejects this notion and declares that resurrection is not a destination. It is not private, and it is not personal. According to Paul, one Corinthian can't access the fullness of the resurrected life apart from the rest of the Corinthians. Their access to resurrection is tied together. God is not interested in redeeming some pieces here and there. 
God is in it to redeem the whole thing. And we know that to be true. As people living in the light of the scientific revolution of the last 150 years, we have learned that everything is an ecosystem, that everything is an ecology, that nothing is independent. It has only been our arrogance that assumed otherwise. We know now that the very atoms that make up all of creation exist in relationship. Nothing is disconnected. Nothing is independent. Even without the benefit of science, Paul somehow understood that truth. He tells the Corinthians to stop shrinking resurrection down to a nice little selfish doctrine of personal escape to paradise. He says it's not about me first salvation, a hope for personal evacuation to a better place when you die. It's about hope for this world here and now, a hope for the entire cosmos being healed and everything being restored. The second category of small thinking that Paul goes after is the notion that in spite of resurrection, death makes life futile. Basically, the Corinthians were assuming that their labor was in vain, that investing one's heart and energy in anything in life is pointless because death erases everything. The thinking held that even if we are resurrected, we are resurrected as something different, and therefore what we were before is irrelevant. Again, the Corinthians were thinking way too small. They're seeing death and resurrection as singular events that each person experiences one time. One death, one resurrection. Now, if that's the case, then everything you do before the one death passes away and only serve the purpose of getting you to the one resurrection. Now, we need to be fair to the people in first century Corinth. Their culture was extremely obsessed with the body. And, and the distinction between the spiritual and the physical. And as we've learned, they were also a culture interested in structure and rules and knowable data. It makes sense that they were trying to figure out the specifics of the resurrection. Of course they wanted to know who was going, when that would happen, and how exactly that resurrection would take place. They wanted details. We, on the other hand, are nothing like that. We aren't obsessed with details and data. We don't delight in organizing our world into neat, orderly categories deciphered by rules and structure. We would never separate the spiritual from the secular, and we don't care about our bodies at all. Or, maybe we do. Maybe we're more like them than we want to admit. Is it possible that we are a 2,000-year-old ancestral mirror image of the church at Corinth? Paul would probably think so. And just like he did with the Corinthians, I can imagine Paul looking at us and saying, you're thinking too small. You're missing it. Think bigger thoughts. The sad truth is that if Paul called the Corinthians fools, I don't want to think about what he would call us. They had the excuse of living 2,000 years ago. They didn't know what we know. They also didn't have a written record from which to learn, a record of a faith community thinking too small and missing the point, a record like 1 Corinthians. We do. We are supposed to stand on their shoulders and not repeat their mistakes. But somehow we do. Here we sit, organizing the resurrection into the chosen and the condemned thinking that our lives moved us toward a singular resurrection when we die, 
that will, if we believe the right thing, transport us away from here to a galaxy far, far away. Believing that I can be saved even if you're not. Assuming that the death and darkness of this world exist only to be avoided and overcome. But Paul says it's not true. We're sitting here this morning in a church that Paul helped build, reading and studying the words that Paul wrote, reflecting on the life that Paul lived. All of it points to the reality that we are being loved by Paul's continuing resurrection 2,000 years after he lived. Resurrection is not a one-time event that takes place when we die. Resurrection is now and always. It's hardwired into the very nature of existence. Resurrection is all around us all the time. It's happening to us and it's happening within us. Now we're a data engulfed culture, so let's talk data. The cells in your body, the microscopic little collections of atoms that make you who you are. 300 million of them die every minute. During the time you spend listening to me this morning, you will lose 6 billion cells. But before they die, those cells also help your body produce several hundred million cells each minute to replace the ones that are dying. And when they do, they don't just produce copies of themselves, they pass on information. The cell that's dying doesn't help produce a cell that makes you who you were a minute ago. It helps make a cell that allows you to be who you are now and continually. At a cellular level, your body experiences billions of resurrections every day. An oak tree during the spring and summer sprouts an acorn and nourishes it while it's connected to the tree. In the autumn, the acorn falls from the tree and dies. If it is absorbed into the soil... It decomposes and reveals a seed that will yield a new sapling. If nurtured, that sapling will grow into a mighty oak tree that will absorb toxic carbon dioxide, generate oxygen, give shelter and food to wildlife, provide shade for other plants and humans in the hot South Texas summer, and ultimately produce more acorns that will produce more trees. I don't know about you, but if I had never seen an oak tree and someone showed me an acorn and then showed me a mighty oak tree like the ones we have around here and told me that that tree came from that little acorn, I would think they were crazy. How in the world could all that life come from that little nothing of a seed? Paul's answer? Think bigger thoughts. Death and resurrection can take the smallest seed and generate something beyond our wildest imaginations. And Paul didn't come up with this answer on, the, on his own. He's simply restating Jesus' own words, the words that we heard this morning from John 12. Jesus said, Unless a grain of wheat is buried to the ground, dead to the world, it is never anything more than a grain of wheat. But if it is buried, it sprouts up and reproduces itself many times over. In the same way, anyone who holds on to life just as it is destroys that life. But if you let it go, reckless in love, you'll have it forever, real and eternal. Now, the end of that quote from Jesus sounds pretty good. But at the beginning, there was this troubling little bit about being dead and buried. That doesn't sound like fun to me. That sounds painful 
and sad and dark. And it makes me want to know, why does it have to be that way? Why does it work like that? Why can't I access the generative power of resurrection without entering into darkness and death? And herein lies what our Catholic brothers and sisters call the great Paschal or Passover mystery. That in order for new life to form, something has to die. And we can't grasp what the new life will be on this side of resurrection. Instead, we step into the mystery in faith. Trusting that we will get to know God and access resurrection by not knowing. We can't know exactly what the acorn will become when it falls to the ground. Only that in doing so, it's subject to resurrection. Resurrection is inexorably tied to death. And death is inexorably tied to faith. Not knowing is a big part of this process. It takes faith to not know. It takes faith to submit to darkness and death that will yield to resurrection. Father Richard Rohr says it this way. The only way we progress and develop is through a necessary period of death and darkness. Most of us don't know how to traverse the darkness. We assume that when death and darkness come, that we have done something wrong and God has abandoned us. But when it all falls apart, we are being transformed. We are experiencing our own passion, death, and resurrection. When it all stops working for us, when we cannot engineer, manipulate, or force our old ways of being, it may not feel like God, but that is God. That is the path of letting go, of dying to self and being resurrected. Now, the path of Jesus, the path that Paul is trying to get the Corinthian church to undertake, it's not a climbing path of ascent, traced in predictable structure, achieved status, knowing, and certitude. It's a path of descent, a path of dying to self and awakening to sacrificial love. It's a path of wandering in the desert, what John of the Cross called a dark night of the senses. It's a path of not knowing, but trusting that what comes on the other side of death and darkness will be greater. The cross is the most dramatic way of God telling us, you're going to have to die to who you think you are. And if we follow our rabbi Jesus to the cross, the self-emptying that Jesus went through will be mirrored in us. Everything is subject to being undone. All of our structures, all of our rules, all of our labor, our sin, our attachments, and our achievements. But the promise of the cross, the promise of the resurrection of Christ, is that every bit of our undoing, every piece of our dying, is redeemable. Resurrection says that the tomb is empty. Everything gets used. Nothing is wasted. Not even our mistakes or our failures. All resources are renewable in the kingdom of God. Everything matters because everything gets resurrected. Death is not the last word. Pain is not the last word. Suffering is not the last word. Resurrection insists that violence and evil and suffering and pain will never be the last word. They're real, 
And they're awful. They're the nightmares that cause us to shake our fists at the heavens and even curse God. But they are not the end. Even evil and suffering and death can be redeemed and made whole. Resurrection declares the story is never over. You know, after our wedding was over and I pulled this ring off in order to put a little neosporin and a band-aid on my wounded finger, I finally read the inscription. In that moment, a few little parts of me fell to the ground and died. And I don't mean parts of my finger. I mean pieces of arrogance and independence and loneliness that I had carried around for a long time. Truth be told, Stacy has been carving pieces of me off ever since. But in each scar, in each moment of suffering, in each death, there has been resurrection. No darkness we have walked through has ever been the last word. Nothing has been wasted, and everything we have surrendered has been redeemed. Somehow, 20 years ago, Stacy could see what Paul saw. She was able to think bigger thoughts than I was. In ways that are beyond me, the resurrected Christ within her knew that our relationship would be a continual and unending cycle of dying to self and resurrection. And that even in death, she would go with me, stay with me, and call my people her own. And that's what I think Paul wants the Corinthians to understand. That Christ, in us and through us, is walking the path of death and darkness, telling us that he will go where we go, live where we live, and call our people his people as we continually fall in the soil of resurrection. And it's okay if we have no idea what will spring forth or how exactly it will happen because not knowing is a much bigger idea.